0: Um, As you may see in your bulletin, it says uh, Exodus chapter 5 and 6, but don't worry, I won't be reading the the two whole chapters. Um, I'll be reading Exodus chapter 5 verses 1 and 2, then we're going to flip into Revelations 8. So that's just a heads up. Okay, please turn to Exodus 5 verse 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Now, Revelations 8, chapter 8, verse 6 to 10. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet and, sa- and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze was, throu- was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood A a third of the living creatures in in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Verse 10. The third angel sounded his his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water.
1: Let's uh, bow our heads in prayer once again. Father in heaven, it's not by accident that we are gathered here in this building today to hear your word. We thank you that providentially you have allowed us to get up uh, on another day to breathe with our lungs and have sound mind and enjoy the company of other believers and listen with our ears and our hearts to what you would say to the church. I pray, Lord, for alertness to the things that you would teach through this next section of Exodus. And Father, again, may I decrease as you increase here and may your glory be the prime thing, the main thing, is my prayer in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Imagine with me the following scenario. There are two friends, and we'll call them Don and Frank. Don is a massive fan of the Edmonton Oilers. Don knows all the Oilers players, past and present. He knows all the stats of every player. He knows the history of the team. But Frank, on the other hand, is completely, utterly clueless, not only about the Edmonton Oilers, but about hockey itself. Frank doesn't know the name of a single NHL player. He doesn't know any of the rules of hockey, neither has he ever seen an actual game. Well, Don, the Euler aficionado, invites Frank to come to a game where superstar Connor McDavid will be playing. By the way, he'll be playing against the Montreal Canadiens tonight. Before they go to the game, Don tries to bring Frank up to speed about hockey. And part of that process is Don regales Frank with stories about Connor McDavid and the amazing skill and accomplishments of Connor McDavid. And then they go to the game. Now Frank sees for himself that everything that Don had been saying to him about McDavid was true. McDavid puts on an astonishing show and he gets four goals. Hopefully that'll happen tonight. <laughs> so now Frank comes to recognize for himself, doesn't he, firsthand, the truth of what Don had only been able to describe to him. Frank now knows, having witnessed firsthand, the greatness of McDavid as a hockey talent. I know that some of you struggled with that whole story. But the scenario that we just walked through happens on an infinitely greater, more massive scale in Exodus chapter 5 through Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 5 through 15 is full of what I would call frank types, people who are ignorant. Not of any lowly Connor McDavid, but rather they are ignorant of Yahweh, God of the universe. And those people are invited in these chapters to witness firsthand the greatness, the astonishing wonders of Yahweh. So that they might come to recognize the incomparable greatness and power and might and glory of Yahweh. In Exodus chapter 5 through 15, Yahweh undertakes several actions in order to evoke acknowledgement of Himself. Yahweh is the best one for human flourishing. Amen? And what we have in Exodus 5 through 15 are about 10 or 11 repeated occurrences of phrases like, know that I am Yahweh, or know that there is no one like Yahweh our God, or know that the earth is Yahweh's. So that the dominant idea in these chapters, we could say, is the need for humanity, for Pharaoh, for common Egyptians, for Israelites, for you and I, to recognize the person of Yahweh and the almighty, supreme, incomparable sway that he has over all the earth. Now, how does this recognition or this knowing about Yahweh come about? Very simply, in these chapters, the knowing comes about by both the words and the deeds of Yahweh himself. That is, Yahweh both expresses his desire to be known, and he does that repeatedly in this part of the Bible, but Yahweh also performs actions, namely, He executes the plagues on Pharaoh and Egypt, and the plagues are meant to create knowledge of him in human beings. God is known both by what he says and what he does. God is known, to quote Chris Wright, by both his explanations and his mighty acts. And the character, the character of the knowledge that Yahweh is after here is not simply, listen, it's not simply an intellectual cognitive knowledge. It's not just facts about Yahweh that Yahweh is interested in promoting. It's more than that. The word K-N-O-W, know, in Hebrew is the word yada. And yada often transcends it transcends the merely cognitive intellectual kind of knowing. Examples are places like Genesis 4:1 where Adam knows yada's his wife Eve and Eve conceives Obviously, the knowing there was not so much an intellectual knowing; it had more to do, obviously, with the intimate and the experiential. I.e., the knowing there in Genesis four one refers to sex. Or, when in Genesis twenty five twenty seven we are told that Esau knew. Hunting, it means that Esau was an experienced hunter. He had skills related to hunting. He had gained experience in hunting. So we can see just from those two examples that the Hebrew conception of knowing often went beyond the cognitive intellectual into the area of intimacy and experience. So that... When in Exodus 5 through 15, Yahweh desires that humanity would know him, what does he want? He wants certainly the intellectual, cognitive, factual knowledge to be sure he wants that, but he's also after experiential, intimate knowledge and knowing. Now, still another shade of knowledge in the Bible reaches also over into the ethical side of the ledger, the ethical side. Watch this. To know Yahweh in the Bible is also to act accordingly. And we can see this especially in a place like Jeremiah 22, verses 15 and 16. You can turn there if you like. Here's what we read in Jeremiah 22, 15 and 16. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord. So in that passage, it's clear that to know Yahweh means to act accordingly, to be ethical, to do justice and righteousness, to judge the cause of the poor and the needy. So again, we're laboring at the outset here to point out that to know God is not simply a brain thing. To know Yahweh also means intimacy and experience and an ethical response. Well, in Exodus 5-15, through the primary audience, the primary audience for the knowledge campaign that Yahweh will lay out is Pharaoh of Egypt. The need for Pharaoh is to apprehend and understand Yahweh in an intellectual sense. The need for Pharaoh is to understand and recognize Yahweh experientially and intimately and the need for Pharaoh is to act in response by obeying Yahweh. So with all that as an introduction, let's go now to the text to what really is the theological starting point for all of Exodus 5 through 15. I know it says 5 and 6 in the bulletin. We're actually going to go through 5 through 15 today and next week, 7 through 11. And then the week after we'll be at chapter 12, just to confuse you. Um <laughs> The theological starting point for all of Exodus 5 through 15 is the first two verses of Exodus 5 that were read for us earlier. In these opening verses of chapter 5, what we have is the first contact that Pharaoh has with Yahweh of Israel. And the contact comes through the agency of Moses and Aaron. Now we remember here that prior to these verses, Yahweh had heard the cry of his enslaved people. Yahweh had officially recruited Moses, hadn't he, to the task of leading Israel out of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron had been well-received by the Hebrew people. Now the time has come for Moses and Aaron to confront Pharaoh. Now, when you're an elderly, lowly shepherd, going before the king of the most powerful nation on earth, normally, at least one would expect, normally, proper manners and proper deference to the king would be a must. Watch what happens here. Moses and his brother Aaron simply skip the niceties. In an almost curt sort of a manner, They simply make a demand of Pharaoh when they show up in his court. They say, rather shockingly, thus says Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, lest Pharaoh confuse this God with any of the pantheon of gods in Egypt, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me In the wilderness, Moses and Aaron simply cut to the chase in front of Pharaoh and they issue this demand. And the response of Pharaoh in verse 2 is what sets the stage for all of Exodus 5 through 15. Pharaoh says, listen to what he says, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh spouts off here about how he's ignorant of Yahweh. Now, because of the way that the question appears in the original Hebrew, we won't go into it here, but because of the way it appears in the original Hebrew, a very strong argument can be made that Pharaoh asks his question, who is Yahweh, not out of innocent sort of ignorance, as if he genuinely didn't know who this God was, seeking help on the question. It's not that. Rather, this is most certainly a question of disdain and insolence and insult. As Walter Brueggemann notes, this responsive pharaoh, he says, is not an inquiry, It is rather a hostile, high-handed dismissal of Yahweh. Pharaoh is unwilling to entertain or recognize the authority of Yahweh. Pharaoh here poses the question, in fact, when we stop to think about it, the question that is fundamental to fallen humanity. Who is the Lord? John Oswalt says, Pharaoh spoke the fundamental question of the whole human race. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Look, I am the God of my life. I make my own decisions. I choose what, when, and how. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? The question, fundamental to humanity. Well, at this point in the story now, I imagine Pharaoh going to Walmart on August 25th to buy loose-leaf paper and a geometry set and some pens and a binder, because now Pharaoh will be taken to the school of Yahweh. Yahweh will now educate Pharaoh on who Yahweh is. But not just Pharaoh. As we're going to see here, Yahweh's Yahweh 101 class will be given also to the rest of Egypt and to Israel and also to you and I if we have ears to hear. Now what does Yahweh do here as he takes Pharaoh to school? What does the curriculum of Yahweh look like? The question is, does Yahweh arrange an academy of prophets to go sit down with Pharaoh and provide Pharaoh with lengthy ap- apologetic arguments for the existence of Yahweh? Does he do that? Or does Yahweh send a foreign army into Egypt to get Pharaoh's attention concerning the reality of Yahweh? The answer to both of those questions is no, he does neither. What Yahweh does here is he sends signs into the midst of Pharaoh in Egypt. Yahweh sends Wonders and plagues. The purpose of such signs or such wonders and plagues is to point to the reality, the greater reality behind the signs. Namely, Yahweh himself. And to bring Pharaoh to that intellectual, experiential, ethical knowledge of Yahweh that we talked about a little earlier. So notice this, what was the purpose of the plagues in Egypt? Was it to judge Pharaoh primarily? No. Well then, was the primary purpose of the plagues to free Israel? No again. According to the text, the primary purpose of the plagues was to educate The purpose was to inculcate or to provide knowledge of Yahweh. Only secondarily were the plagues meant to judge Egypt and or deliver Israel from Egypt. In the main, according to the Bible, if we read the text carefully, the plagues were to play an educational role. Let's watch how all this unfolds in Exodus 5 through 15. And here what we want to do with the bulk of our time now is to go to those places in Exodus 5 through 15, where the education campaign of Yahweh is made explicit. So come with me first to Exodus 7:5, and I encourage you to have your Bible open. In this verse, Exodus 7:5, God talks about both his purpose. And his methodology in bringing the plagues. His purpose and his methodology. He says, the Egyptians, notice what he says, shall know, he's after knowing, shall know, what? That I am Yahweh. So there's the purpose. Knowledge is the purpose. And then methodology. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt, now watch this, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, how will Egypt know that he is Yahweh? By use of the methodology. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Now notice carefully there that the knowledge of Yahweh in Egypt depends on Yahweh rescuing Israel from Egypt. You notice that? As commentator James Bruckner puts it, I think very insightfully, he says, the knowledge of these Gentile Egyptians depended on the Lord's rescue of the children of Israel. The Egyptians would only know the Lord when they were no longer benefiting from the oppression of the people of God. It's very interesting. Well, jump down next to Exodus 7.17. Here we are in the context of the first plague now, where the waters of the Nile were transformed into blood. Exodus 7.17 is a word to Pharaoh that Moses is to speak. It reads, Thus says Yahweh, Whenever we see the Lord, capital L, capital O-R-D, it's Yahweh in the original text. Thus says Yahweh, by this, what? You shall know, there it is again. He's after knowledge. It's education. You shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Again, notice the clear purpose statement of Yahweh. Yahweh's desire is for Pharaoh to gain knowledge of Yahweh. And this knowledge will arise when Pharaoh observes the Nile being turned into blood. Now, here's something interesting. For Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the Nile was the life-giving river. And not only that, according to what we read in Ezekiel 29.3, the pharaoh of Egypt credited himself with creating the Nile. So could it be that when Yahweh targets the Nile, turning it into, turning it into blood as he does, that he's saying in essence, there's only one life giver. In fact, it's not this river. It's me, Yahweh. And further, because it was me, in fact, who created the Nile, look, I can do with it whatever I please. Yahweh wants Pharaoh to know who Yahweh really is. And we note carefully here in Exodus 17 as well, we note that this is the very first instance in the Bible, say amen Gentiles, it's the first instance in the Bible of the phrase, I am Yahweh, being uttered into Gentile ears. So at this early stage of the Bible, this early stage of things, right here in Exodus, God is already spreading knowledge of himself and his fame to the Gentiles, to the nations. Let's go next to Exodus 8.8-8.10. 8, 8 through 8.10. Now, these verses are found within the story of the second plague, the plague of, everybody know, frogs. Yahweh ramped up the amphibians in Egypt, and the magicians of Egypt were able to reproduce the same wonder. But the thing is, there were limits to what Pharaoh's magicians could do. Although they could bring the frogs, They couldn't remove them. (laughs) Very important. Pharaoh here recognizes that the power to remove the frogs is in Yahweh's hand. And so Pharaoh pleads with Moses and Aaron to beseech Yahweh to take the frogs away. Notice this, at least here we have a glimmer in Pharaoh, a glimmer of his recognition of Yahweh, right? Only Yahweh has power to take away the frogs, and Pharaoh seems to concede at least that much. Maybe he's gaining a little bit of the knowledge that Yahweh desired. Now watch the rather ingenious move by Moses in Exodus 8-9. Look at Exodus 8-9 with me. Moses gives Pharaoh the freedom to go ahead and choose the precise time of the frog's removal. Notice this. Why was this so ingenious on the part of Moses? Because if Pharaoh chose the time of the amphibian removal and then that removal happened when Pharaoh had chosen, then Pharaoh would have to realize would he not, that something other than natural processes was at work. In Exodus 8.10, Pharaoh chooses the next day, interestingly enough. Why not today? He chooses the next day for the frog's removal and Moses says, be it as you say, and then notice, so that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. Notice this again, friends. The goal of Yahweh removing the frogs at the time of Pharaoh's choosing was the enlightenment of Pharaoh to the reality of Yahweh. And in this case, the specific thing that Pharaoh was to be enlightened on, notice, was the incomparability of Yahweh that there was no one like Yahweh God. Pharaoh was to see that Yahweh was in a class by himself, incomparable, no one came close. And I can imagine Pharaoh squirming at such a notion as this. Why? Well, because in Egypt, the widespread belief amongst the Egyptians was that their sun God, Ray, was incomparable and without peer. And along with that, the belief was that the Pharaoh was the son of Ray, the sun God, and thus also incomparable, like Ray his father. But now here was Moses telling Pharaoh that contrary to popular widespread Egyptian belief, it was Yahweh God of Israel who was the incomparable one who was without peer. Pharaoh would see Yahweh's incomparability when Yahweh removed the frogs on Pharaoh's calendar. When those frogs disappeared, Pharaoh would come to know the inferiority of every Egyptian god in comparison with Yahweh of Israel. Let's jump down next to Exodus 8.22. Here we are now in the fourth plague, the plague of flies. In Exodus 8.21, God promises Pharaoh that a failure, a failure to release the people will mean an inundation of flies in the land of Egypt. But then watch verse 22. Watch what God says. God says, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. So God was going to inundate Pharaoh and the Egyptians with flies But simultaneously, God would ensure miraculously and astonishingly that his own people, the Hebrews, would not be affected by the flies in any manner, way, shape, or form. Here, Pharaoh had a choice. Let Israel go and thus spare his own people from the flies show mercy to his own people by letting Israel go. Or Pharaoh could keep Israel in Egypt and thus cruelly plague his Egyptian people with flies. Yahweh would act mercifully toward his people by letting Israel... uh, Sorry... Yahweh would act mercifully toward his people, sparing them from flies, no matter what. Would Pharaoh act mercifully to his people by letting Israel go, sparing the Egyptians from the flies? Notice what's happening here. Yahweh in this is beginning to separate himself from Pharaoh in terms of mercy. Yahweh acts merciful to his own. Does Pharaoh, that's the question being raised here. But again, let's not lose track of the main purpose in this plague of flies, given there in verse 22. When Yahweh saw his own people swarmed, or sorry, when Pharaoh saw his own people swarmed by flies, while the Israelites enjoyed respite from the flies, the lesson of Yahweh, namely, I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth, would become clear. Now in the ancient Near East, the assumption was in this culture that a given God only controlled his or her given territory. Egyptian gods stuck to the territory of Egypt. Mesopotamian gods remained in the territory of Mesopotamia and so forth. For Yahweh to claim that he was at work not just over in Israel, but in the midst of the earth, (laughs) even over in Egypt, this was an audacious claim. Yahweh would show that he was not limited to any specific geographical area. He was quite capable of acting in any part of his globe. Let's go next to Exodus 9, verses 14 through 16. We're working through the knowledge campaign passages in these chapters. Exodus 9, 14 through 16. These verses are embedded in the narrative of the seventh plague, the plague of hail. Now, again, in Hebrew literature, the number seven is particularly important. Seven often denotes a completion or a fullness So we should sit up and pay attention to the fact that the hail plague is the seventh in the cycle. Something important is going on here. Let's go slowly through this passage. God says to Pharaoh, for this time I will send all my plagues or a decent rendering would be for this time I will send the full force of my plagues. On you yourself, or more literally from the Hebrew, on your heart. A commentator named Cornelis Houtman says this. Pharaoh will be struck in his heart of hearts. There where he makes his decisions. So that he loses his equilibrium and drops his intransigent attitude. Again, let's read it with those changes. For this time I will send the full force of my plagues on your heart, Pharaoh, and on your servants and your people, so that what? So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand, Had I wanted to, Pharaoh, I could have put out my hand by now and struck you and your people with pestilence. And you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up. God has a wonderful plan for your life, Pharaoh. What's the purpose of his life? For this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power. (laughs) so that my name, not yours, Pharaoh, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now these words from Yahweh are uttered just prior to the point when Yahweh sends very heavy hail on Egypt. Most of the uses of the word hail in the Hebrew Bible occur in Exodus chapter 9 passages such as job 38:22 and 23 and psalm 18:12 through 14 those passages indicate to us that hail is a weapon that god uses in battle so it would be appropriate for us to view this seventh plague of hail as a full-on invasion of yahweh into egypt And again, don't lose track of Yahweh's purpose in it. Yahweh's purpose in sending the hail is to teach Pharaoh that there is none like Yahweh in all the earth, according to verse 14. But yet, folks, we notice in this description of the seventh plague, listen, some notable, amazing restraint in Yahweh. Notice this. Verse 15 says that Yahweh could have Had he wanted to, he could have wiped Pharaoh out by now very easily by use of the first six plagues. But no, Yahweh has kept Pharaoh alive. He's kept him drawing breath. Why? To show Pharaoh the power of Yahweh and to make Yahweh's name, not Pharaoh's, great in all the earth. Just notice the restraint in Yahweh, our God is a God who has unlimited force and unlimited power. But Yahweh shows his capability to act in moderation if he desires. Unlike Pharaoh, human rulers, Pharaoh, who used, Pharaoh did, his, his limited human power. He used it in an unchecked, unrestrained way to dominate the Hebrew people. Well, we go next to Exodus 9.29. Track with me here. Exodus 9.29. Here we're still in the seventh plague. Now, two verses earlier in Exodus 9.27, Pharaoh had made what is a pretty significant confession. Notice 9.27. Pharaoh had said, This time I have sinned. Yahweh is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. That's pretty significant. And then in verse 28, Pharaoh had asked Moses and Aaron to plead with Yahweh to remove the hail. Pharaoh promised to release the people if the hail was removed. Exodus 9.29 has Moses saying this. As soon as I have gone out of the city... I will stretch out my hands to Yahweh, the thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. Now notice some very interesting facts here, folks. First of all, Moses, notice, is going to go out of the city, out of the city, and only then will he stretch out his hands and pray for the removal of the hail meaning, of course, that Moses is going to walk through the terrific hailstorm before he prays for its end. Does this imply that Moses is trusting Yahweh for protection from the hail or, or some sort of separation from the hail, like the separation that Yahweh had been willing to undertake with the plague of flies? I think probably it does imply that Moses has trust in Yahweh for his protection. Secondly, note well in verse 29 that the way Pharaoh will know that the earth is Yahweh's this time, notice this carefully, is not in the sending of the hail but rather in its removal. Notice, when Yahweh ends the hail, When he removes the storm, then Pharaoh will know about Yahweh. Now meditate on that. I think this teaches that God is a God who sometimes, again, wants to be known for his restraint. The cessation of the hail is the thing that will teach Pharaoh about Yahweh. I think this is a very interesting lesson here that's worth our meditation. Well, let's go last to Exodus 10.2. Exodus 10:2 is found within the story of the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. And watch the interesting twist in events now. This time, Yahweh is after Moses and Israel in his knowledge campaign. Yahweh wants Israel to know that he is Yahweh. It's very interesting. Yahweh tells Moses here that the signs that Yahweh has been directing against Egypt have been happening, at least in part they've been happening, that you, Moses, may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you, Moses and Israel, may know that I am Yahweh. In other words, these plague signs in Egypt, they were for Israel's benefit as much as they were for Egypt's. Israel also needed to recognize, to know Yahweh in the intellectual, experiential, Ethical way that we've talked about. These plague signs were to be recited and rehearsed, notice, in every generation of Israel, in the hearing of your son and your grandson, so that every generation of Israel would recognize God, would recognize Yahweh for who He is. And so we have chapters in later scripture such as Psalm 78 and Psalm 105 where the plague signs are recited. If you read those psalms, they are recited and rehearsed by the nation of Israel in later days. Generation by generation, the story of the plagues was to be told why in order to nurture faith in Yahweh, in God. Well, time is too short today to deal as I would have liked with other verses like Exodus 14.4 where at the Red Sea, God says this, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them into the sea and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. So there... It's the collapsing of the sea walls over Pharaoh and his army that was being orchestrated by God to teach Egypt about the reality and power of Yahweh. Time is too short also to deal with Exodus 14.18, which essentially says the same thing as Exodus 14.4. In Exodus 14.18, God says, And the Egyptians shall what? Know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Wow. In other words, in their dying moments, the warring Egyptians would themselves become a proclamation to the rest of Egypt of the reality and power and might of Yahweh, God of Israel, who caused the sea walls to collapse in on them and drown them. Well, what I want to do in our final moments is to ask the question. All right, so having looked at the, the, the sustained educational campaign, knowledge campaign that Yahweh undertakes in Exodus 5 through 15, having looked at that, and all of it again sprung off the question in Exodus 5 2 that is asked by Pharaoh. Who is Yahweh? After all that, what was the result? In other words, did Egypt, did Pharaoh, did Israel learn the lessons that Yahweh was trying to teach? Have we? For Israel's part, we have good evidence that they were, in fact, learning the lessons that Yahweh was trying to teach. Right after the whole plague cycle and after the Red Sea event, we have Exodus 15, specifically Exodus 15:11, where Israel sings, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, As they sing that song, Israel is saying, we've learned the lesson by experiencing the plagues, seeing what you did at the Red Sea. Indeed, Yahweh is incomparable. There is no God like Him. There is no God in the same league as Yahweh, in the same postal code. And then down in Exodus fifteen eighteen, Israel declares, one of the great declarations of Scripture, Yahweh will reign forever and ever. That is, Yahweh is King. And not only is He King, He is King eternal. His word and His actions in the plagues and in the Red Sea have proven His sovereign eternal kingship. So Israel, for their part, who had lived, remember, they had lived immersed in a polytheistic environment with many gods in Egypt for hundreds and hundreds of years. They were coming to know at this point in their history that Yahweh was the sole incomparable eternal king. Israel was learning the lessons that Yahweh had been laboring to teach. Where Pharaoh is concerned, even though he did show some signs here and there of acknowledging Yahweh throughout the plague cycle, it's highly debatable whether he actually ever came to know Yahweh in the way that Yahweh had desired. Pharaoh, we might say, appears to have failed the curriculum of Yahweh. And then the Egyptian people, did at least some of them come to know Yahweh as Yahweh desired? I think we can answer here in the affirmative. Two pieces of evidence from Exodus seem to suggest that at least some Egyptians did pass the final exam with Yahweh. They came to know Yahweh. What are the, what's the evidence? In Exodus 9.20, During the seventh plague of hail, we read there, Exodus 9.20, that there were some officials in Pharaoh's court who, what? Feared the word of Yahweh and therefore rushed to bring cattle and slaves into their houses to be spared from the hail. They feared the word of Yahweh. And then perhaps more tellingly, down in Exodus 12, verses 37 and 38, we get notice there that many people, the way the text is written, it makes a distinction between Israelites and other people who left Egypt when Israel left Egypt. They left together. Most likely the mixed multitude of these verses included Egyptian people who Walter Kaiser has said, were more than merely impressed by what they saw and heard. Instead, says Kaiser, these people were some of the first fruits of the work of God in their midst. So it does appear that some Egyptians learned the lessons that Yahweh had been trying to teach. They came to know Yahweh. Well, that leaves us. In immersing ourselves in this part of Exodus, what is our response to this great God who reveals himself here and who has most fully revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ? I wonder after walking through this together, if we want to fall on our faces with Israel and sing, who is like you, Lord, majestic in holiness Awesome and glorious deeds doing wonders. Exodus 5 through 15 is an amalgam, as we've said, of both the words and deeds of Yahweh. And a good case can be made that the entire New Testament is an amalgam of words about Jesus and the acts of God in Jesus. His birth, his life, his cross, resurrection, ascension, and future coming. And what strikes us is that in several places of the New Testament, Jesus, the Son of God, sounds eerily similar to Yahweh in Exodus 5-15. through 15. Three examples. First, Just as Yahweh had expressed his desire to Pharaoh in Exodus 8.22, that you, Pharaoh, would know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. So Jesus, in Mark 2.10, expresses his desire that a group of scribes would know, he says, that the Son of Man has authority on earth. To forgive sins. Like Yahweh in Exodus 8.22. Jesus in Mark 2.10 is after knowledge. Knowledge that he, Jesus, has divine authority in the midst of the earth to forgive sins. Second example in John 8.28. Jesus talks about the goal or the purpose of his cross. And he says specifically, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, is literally what it says in the Greek. The cross would be a sign in the earth that would promote knowledge, the lofty, glorious knowledge that Jesus is, I am. That he is Yahweh come in the flesh. Yahweh sent to save ruined sinners like you and I. Third example, John 17.3. There, Jesus defines eternal life. Listen how he defines, what is eternal life, Jesus? He defines it as that they know you, Father, the only true God. Intellectually, experientially, intimately, ethically, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life there, notice, is linked, inseparably it's linked with knowing Father and Son, intellectually, experientially, intimately, ethically. In Jesus' day, at least some came to the knowledge that Jesus was who He said He was. At least some did. In John 4.42, we have some Samaritans confessing. Listen to where they confess. We know, they say, that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They'd seen His signs. They'd heard His teaching. In John 6.69, Peter says, on behalf of the disciples, he says, We have believed, says this to Jesus, we have believed and have come to know that you, Jesus, are the Holy One of God. In Mark 15.39, a Gentile centurion who is witnessing the cross said, I can't imagine how he said this, truly, this is the Son of God. So some came to the knowledge that Jesus desired. Some came to know that Jesus was and is the Christ of God. Today, God still desires that we recognize Him for who He is in the intellectual, spiritual, experiential, and ethical senses that we've tried to emphasize this morning. Philippians 3.8 tells us that nothing, listen, nothing can eclipse knowing Jesus. Nothing can eclipse knowing Him. Second Peter 2.20 tells us that the path to escaping the defilements of this world, do you want to escape the defilements of this world? The path is through the knowledge of Jesus. Colossians 3.10 says that knowledge of Him, knowledge of Him, is the very environment in which we are being renewed. Ephesians 4.13 encourages us to grow and to gain in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. To not know Him is to be enslaved. In idolatry. Galatians 4.8 To not know him is to be like a new pharaoh not seeing fit to acknowledge God. Romans one twenty eight. To not know him is to have a heart like Pharaoh's. To live in willful ignorance and be darkened in understanding. Romans 1.21, Ephesians 4.18. To not know Him is to live in what right now might seem like a blissful state of unbelief. But you must know that according to Revelation 8-11. through 11, Now listen there is a day coming when God will hear the cry of His church. Revelation 6, 9-11. He'll hear the cry of His kids and He will act with an inundation of fresh plagues on unbelievers. God will send Hail and fire mixed with blood, according to Revelation 8.7 and Revelation 11.19. Not just the Nile River, but rather a third of the sea will become blood, according to Revelation 8.8. And as it was in the original plagues, darkness and locusts will once again plague the earth according to Revelation 8.12, 9.2, 9.3, and 9.7. And just as Pharaoh's heart hardened throughout the Exodus plagues, so unbelievers in that great and terrible day will refuse to repent of their sin despite God's plagues, according to Revelation 9, verses 20 and 21. Until finally... Revelation 14:17 through 20. Finally, a terrible divine destruction will come on unbelievers. Now, I'm just the messenger. And as the drowning of Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea became the occasion for Israel to sing the praise of Yahweh on the shore of the sea, so the destruction of unrepentant believers in Revelation 14 gives way to Revelation 15, where the faithful, though persecuted church, as we are described there, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name, what do they do there in Revelation 15? They sing at the sea. The song they sing, according to Revelation 15.3, is the song of Moses, going back to Exodus, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but I plan to be there. Do you? I plan to sing at the sea in robust recognition, in happy knowledge, not only of the one in days gone by who gained glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen, but of the crucified, risen Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who destroyed every rule, authority, and power that opposed Him and put His enemies under His feet. I invite you with arms wide open. To talk to me seriously after this service, if you don't know him, and if you desire to know this Jesus of whom we speak, let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you and we adore you and we give you the honor that you are due. You are so worthy of our happy, joyful praise that wells up from the depths of our being. Lord, may we feel you and know you in the way that we've talked about in our bones this week as we travel through this world in another week full of, in some cases, challenges, difficult conversations that might be coming up this week, May we rest in the knowledge of you and your gospel and the hope that you have given us. Give us courage for another week of work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go from this place with joy to love and serve God and one another. And may the blessing of God, the love of Jesus Christ, and the presence of the Holy Spirit be among you and within you. Amen.